Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Sharon Werner, Chief Operating Officer of PNC Bank's Corporate Responsibility Group. There, she leads PNC's efforts on a variety of environmental, social, and governance topics across the business and its operations. I got to know Sharon when we both worked on Capitol Hill. She was chief of staff to a new member of Congress, Jason Altmaier, and I was a leadership staffer tasked with trying to help her boss and many other members from competitive districts get reelected. As you'll hear, politics was almost entirely brand new to Sharon at the time. She was chief of staff after having mostly legal experience and only a little campaign experience. But she was, and this will not surprise you, a total natural. She was thrown into the deep end of the pool with little experience and proceeded to set an Olympic record in the backstroke, which also may not come as a surprise once you learn she was a collegiate swimmer at Penn State. Her career in public service took her from the office of Jason Altmaier to the U.S. Department of Justice. There, she was White House liaison and counselor to Attorney General Eric Holder, and later became chief of staff for the entire department and was also an advisor to Attorney General Loretta Lynch. In her roles at DOJ, Sharon worked on a wide range of issues, everything from criminal prosecutions to civil litigation to national and cybersecurity to domestic and international policy developments, legislative strategy, criminal justice reform, and much more. I am an enormous fan of Sharon's. While getting to work alongside her for a couple of years, and later as an admirer of her impact and her career from afar, I have always appreciated just how kind and thoughtful and funny, down-to-earth and brilliant she is. I think that all comes through in this interview, which I hope you enjoy. We recorded it on Friday, April 14th. Sharon Werner, welcome to Staffer. Thank you so much, Jim. I am such a huge fan of yours and such a huge fan of this podcast you created, and I'm really honored to be here. Well, right back at you. I am so excited to be talking with you today. Um, As you know, I like to start at the beginning. Um, Mm -hmm. So I like to learn a little bit about where our guests grew up and what family life was like. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I grew up in State College, Pennsylvania. I am the youngest of three kids. I have an older brother and older sister. We're all pretty close in age. Uh, My dad was a physician in town. My mom was what we called a professional volunteer. I'm not sure that there is a board in central Pennsylvania she has not served on at this point. Uh, And it was a pretty idyllic childhood in a university town. And um, yeah, it was a really lovely place to grow up. Yeah, so um, you saw your your father engaged in the community and your mother extremely engaged in the community. Did you talk about politics growing up? Was that something in, you know, part of family life growing up or was it something you came to um, later? It was definitely part of family conversations. My parents were very engaged in politics. They actually both held Um, local elected positions, sort Ah. of small level, but my dad was a township supervisor and he was chief of, he was elected chief of staff at the community hospital. My mom was on the school board for 12 years. She was president for some amount of time in there as well. Um, And both my parents felt very strongly about giving back to the community. So 
when they got involved in politics, it wasn't so much we want to be in politics because we want to move up the ladder of, you know, of elected positions. It was we want to serve our community. Neither of them are from Pennsylvania. They landed there. My dad is from the Finger Lake region of New York close to where you grew up. Yay. Uh, yay. Uh, my mom is actually from Montreal, so I'm half Canadian. Um, and I know that. Yeah, and we landed in State College because my parents sort of fell in love with the idea of raising their kids in a university town. So we got there, and they both have very strong um, feelings about community service. That's They grew up with sort of these, these um, values instilled in them. And they then passed it on to the next generation. Yeah, they sure did. Um, okay, so you grew up in State College. You went to Penn State. You I were did. a swimmer there and a Nittany Lion. Uh, I know you went to law school afterwards uh, at Stanford, uh, and soon after that, you clerked in the in the courtroom of Judge Barbara Jones in the prestigious U.S. District Court in the Southern District of New York. Um, about clerking, this is something that not a lot of our guests have done, yeah. and maybe many of our listeners have heard about clerking, but what actually do clerks do? Oh, gosh, this I didn't prepare for. <laughs> so clerks are sort of the right-hand people for their judges, um, and it's usually for maybe a year, sometimes two years, and they help their judges uh, conduct trials, conduct hearings, conduct trials, write opinions. Obviously, the judge has final say on all those things. Clerks will often do the first draft. Um, and it really, it depends on the judge. It depends on, you know, what their needs are. I had sort of it's this amazing judge um, who was a woman who had been a prosecutor in New York, had sort of like come up the ranks as a prosecutor in Manhattan at a time where not many women were prosecutors in Manhattan. So she was just an incredible mentor um, in the legal field and really wanted her clerks to get a sense of what is it to practice criminal law? What is it to practice civil law in federal court? So, of course, all the cases you're seeing are only federal cases. Um, and there's, you know, there's clerks at the state level as well. Um, but it's it's just sort of a really special experience to see the court system in action every day. And um, and thankfully, I had an incredible judge to do that with. Well, I mean, your, your legal career, it was quite impressive for the, the time that you were in it. I mean, Stanford Law School, as we all know, you know, very, very top of the charts. Clerking in the Southern District of New York, as I said, very prestigious. You then worked at a law firm in Pittsburgh, Debevoise and Plimpton. Um, but shortly thereafter, so after a couple of years, you must have felt the itch to get into politics. So how, what happened there? So um, the law firm I was at, Debevoise, actually was in New York. So I was oh, in New I York. See. Okay. Yeah. So I was in New York for three years with, between my clerkship and um, working at the firm. And between my clerkship and going to Debevoise, I had maybe a month and a half off. And it was the Kerry campaign. It was the fall of 2004. So John Kerry was running for president. I felt really strongly about his campaign. My brother lived in Pittsburgh. Uh, he had lived here, I don't know, maybe like 10 years at the time. And so 
and had just had his first set of twins. And I was like, well, I'll just go hang out with my new niece and nephew and volunteer for the Carrie campaign and live in their basement for a month and a half. And that's what I did. And um, it was it was a pretty fun experience to get exposed to being on a political campaign. I had no political experience. I mean, I really, in college... Basically, all I did through college was swim. That was my that was that was my focus. And so I never did student government. I never did any of those things. So I had an interest, but never really explored it. So I went to the Kerry campaign. I think I volunteered for a week, and then they immediately hired me on because they needed more people. Um, and and I so I did that for a month and a half, and then of course. John Kerry lost the election. Um, But even if he had won, my plan was always to go back to New York and go start working at this law firm that I had an offer for. So then I went to Deba Voice. I was there for about two years. It was a great experience, but it was big law in New York City, which is a lot of hours and not for a junior associate, not always the most exciting work, though I will say I had a great team of other junior associates I worked with. So I had a very good experience. But at some point I was like, what am I, what am I doing here? I, I don't want to become a partner at a firm. Yeah. I don't want to live in New York City the rest of my life. In my 20s, it was amazing. But I knew this was not sort of a long-term thing. Mm-hmm. So this is now sort of like summer of 2006, maybe. And my brother had just had his second set of twins and I was like I'll go live in their basement again and hang out with my new set of my new niece and nephew. You know, I do have to pause you because among the things I find amazing about this particular story is there aren't many people who choose to move into homes with oh. newborn twins. I know. I know. So, <laughs> and you did it twice. I did it twice. But I'll tell you, I wasn't as helpful as I thought I was, right? Like, I didn't have kids yet, so you don't know how to really be helpful. So I did a lot of holding the babies when they were quiet and happy, not so much when they needed diapers changed. Anyway, so um, so I wanted to move back to Pittsburgh and work on a campaign. And at the time, I, th- I think Senator Casey was running for his first term as in, Senate, in the Senate. <clears throat> Excuse me. Ed Rendell was running for re-election as governor. And I spoke to both of those campaigns, but they already had their senior staff already set up. I mean, they didn't really need me. And then a friend who I had met during my carry stint said, oh, you should look at this guy who's running for Congress, Jason Altmaier. He probably he's he's down by a lot in the polls right now, but he's a good guy and he doesn't have a big staff and you'd have a big role. And I thought, well, I don't actually I didn't intend for it to go anywhere. This was sort of like I was taking a break from my law firm. They gave me a leave of absence, which was amazing. So if I wanted, I could go back and pick up my life where I left off. Um, And so I, I kind of cold called this guy, Jason Altmaier, and drove into Pittsburgh and had coffee with him. And he said, yeah, I have, I think he had one full-time staffer at the time. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. I know. And I said, okay, yeah, I'll come work for you. And I became his finance director and moved back into the basement and then worked for Jason for four months. And lo and behold, 2006, Jason won. We won back the house. It It was an exciting time. Absolutely incredible. Um, 
let me just ask you about the position of fundraiser because, you know, a lot of people do get their start in politics as uh, fundraising staff. What did you learn about politics being a finance director? I think from the very beginning, I had a very um, good sense of, unfortunately, how much time some of our elected officials have to spend fundraising. And that's just the system that we have right now. Uh, It's no fault of any candidate or current member of government. Yeah. Um, But it is so much of their time. And it doesn't, I, I mean, I suppose if you were in a safe district, you don't have to spend quite as much time on the fundraising side of things. I was always jealous of those offices. Uh, But working for someone from, you know, a swing district, that is what a lot of the focus has to be on, which, again, is unfortunate. But And and they hate it. You know, that's not why they got into, you know, politics or decided to run. You know, they would much rather be doing all anything else. Oh, and it's like universal, right? So everybody has stories of trying to hold their bosses down at call time and actually make the phone calls. Right. Nobody yeah. likes it. That's right. Um, I did enjoy, I will say, I did enjoy, I met a ton of sort of the movers and shakers in Pittsburgh at the time who were involved in democratic politics. Um, because obviously, you know, they all want to be involved and they're all super interesting, fun people. So that was definitely the upside of that. Yeah. Well, this is it's such a turning point in your career, your experience with Jason Altmaier in that 06 campaign, because little did you know at that time, you your career was going to go on a 10 year rocket ship. Um, He asks you to be his chief of staff after he wins. And over the course, as I said, of that decade, you go from being his uh, chief of staff to then going over to the Department of Justice and eventually becoming chief of staff of that department and counselor to the Attorney General of the United States. It's an absolutely incredible arc. Um, and so let's let's ride that rocket ship together. All um, right. So Election Day uh, comes. It's exciting. It's incredible. Um, the congressman asks you to be his chief of staff. Tell me about that conversation and how you felt when, on the right, you get this really exciting offer. And on the other hand, you, there must have been some, you know, some pause that's, you know, somewhere within you. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Because I had never worked on the Hill. I had never really worked in D.C. I had done an internship at C-SPAN in college. Uh, but that was my D.C. experience. Um, but I will say, I give Jason so much credit for having the faith in me to to offer it to me. Jason himself had been a staffer years before, and so he knew the Hill really well. And he had worked in government affairs as well. So he was confident in his own abilities to maneuver on the Hill, and he had the faith in me that I would learn it as well. Um, but yeah, I... I had no idea what I was doing, what I was getting myself into. Once I got to D.C., I had no idea what I was doing, as you know very well, Jim, because you were right there with me, uh, teaching me everything. Um, But it was, I mean, it was one of, it was one of those experiences where you don't, you don't say no in that situation. You just say yes and figure it out. 
I that so pausing there for a second that is I think really good advice because everyone in in their career if they work really hard and they get a little lucky some opportunities will come their way before they think they're fully ready for them hmm. and you have to have enough confidence in yourself to say okay I can get this thing with my fingertips yes right and I can pull myself up from those fingertips and I will rely on others and I'll be eyes wide open about what I don't know. But don't say no just because you can't do the job yet. Because lots of people are doing jobs that you admire and maybe they just have those by their fingertips. Exactly. I mean, that is advice that I give to a lot of young people who are, especially who are getting into public service. I think when you accept a new job, you should be terrified. Or at least in my experience, that has yeah. been the case. Because if you're really confident, like, I'm going to go in there and I know what I'm doing, then why are you taking this new job? It's you're, Are you going to learn anything new? Are you going to grow at all? So to me, I mean, it is scary, I will say. Um, it, it doesn't make it any easier to have gone through it a number of times and known, like, this is a, this is a good path for me. Every time, it is scary. But... If you don't take those chances and you don't swing for the fences, then you're never going to go as far as as you hope to. That's right. Okay, so between election day and, you know, let's say end of Q1 of 2007, you as the new chief of staff have to set up a new congressional office, uh, manage the whole swearing in, go through committee assignments with your boss, hire all the staff in D.C. and in the district uh, office or offices can't let the campaign fall apart because you're a frontline Democrat and you're, you know, off and running just already, you know, in Q1 and you're new to it. So talk to us about how you like how you specifically thought about the job Um and did it so successfully. And I can say that as somebody who was there at the time and watched you go through it, you did do it so successfully and the results show it. But how did you, you know, progress through those weeks and months in a way that enabled you to succeed? Mm-hmm. So, again, I will say I give a lot of credit to Jason, to my boss, who had a very good sense of all the things that needed to be done. So in some ways, he would sort of lay it out for me, and then I would go make sure those things happened. But he had a good sense of of what we needed to do and how he sort of envisioned it. I will also say, I think I, I think I'm pretty good about finding the right people to help me with things. So either people that I just happen to click with or people who I can tell are really sort of experts in what they do. And so I very quickly found mentors on the Hill who could teach me. And you, of course, were in a position where you were sort of assigned to help the frontline offices, but you were invaluable. I mean, I would not, I would say this to anyone, not just on your podcast. I would not have survived without those Monday meetings. Every week we would meet. Right. And it was a ragtag group and we somehow all pulled ourselves together. I mean, I just, I loved those weekly meetings of chiefs of staff from the new offices. We, it was super, super helpful. And not just you, but all of those folks really sort of taught me steps along the way. And I figured out, 
I want to do that. I don't want to do that. And um, and it was sort of it was definitely a day by day kind of situation. Yeah. Well, and though I mean, I I gained as much as I ever gave um, during those two years as well, um, because as you said, it was it was a group of really talented people doing something really hard simultaneously and together. Um, and so we learned a lot from one another. You know, you you've mentioned the the challenge of the the frontline office. The frontline is the term we use for those Democrats, but Republic it applies to Republicans as well. The members of Congress or senators, et cetera, who hold seats that are extremely competitive and the other party is coming to take you out every single day. Um, not every member or staff member experiences that. So what is something that, you know, how would you describe that environment for staff or potential staff who haven't lived on that razor's edge day to day? I mean, that's really how you describe it. It is living on a razor's edge every day. So it is not only sort of having to run a full-time campaign simultaneously to setting up a congressional office, having your congressperson, in this case, congressman, um, represent his district. So you have to figure out all the legislative priorities. How are you going to vote? How are you going to, what are you going to, what bills are you going to co-sponsor? All of those things. Um, Plus constituent service, which was something that we were sort of starting from scratch. So not only you have to respond to mail, but someone needs a passport in two days and you need someone who can get in touch with State Department to make that happen immediately for your constituents. Um, It's so much on that level, but you're running a full-time campaign. So it's really, there's so much time, again, devoted to fundraising, unfortunately. Um, And you have to be so careful about everything you say. I mean, it's even a different environment now because obviously this was 2006 pre-Twitter and all of that. And But one wrong move felt like your opponent was going to jump on it and that could be the end. So it was it was very intense every day. Yes. Uh, very intense is a good way to put it. I heard uh, one person describe it as each day was a fresh opportunity to commit political suicide. Exactly. And and you don't know where it's coming from. You know, when you mentioned constituent service, it could be, you know, that one phone call that slips through the cracks. It could be your boss is tired when he's walking to work one day and somebody's got a cell phone in his face. Right. It could be the misphrased press release, whatever it is. Any one of these slip ups could be the thing that ends up being relevant. Right. During the campaign and is the straw that breaks the camel's back. Exactly. Um, You said you have a knack for picking good staff. So what makes a good staffer and how do you. You know, what is that spidey sense that you have? Do you have questions you like to ask? Is there, you know, how do you ferret that out? Well, I will say, I think I was saying I have a knack for finding other people who can mentor me. Is what I was trying to say ah, earlier. Okay. Got but it. Okay. I will also say I have a knack for finding good staff because we had an incredible staff. Um, they were really, really great. Um, so number one, and I feel this way even in my job today, I... I want to find people who are committed to the mission of whatever we're doing. So sometimes we could find people who were from Western Pennsylvania or from Pittsburgh and who really just loved the area and wanted to do whatever they could to sort of 
help their hometown or their home region. And sometimes we found people who were super committed to, um, you know, like legislative priorities that my boss was also committed to. Um, but it's it's also a sense of like finding the teammates who want to work together and who are actually going to be friendly inside and outside the office. I mean, I think we've all seen really healthy offices on the Hill and really dysfunctional offices on the Hill. Um, and I think a lot of that, a lot of that comes from the member for sure. Um, and I think a lot of it also comes from the chief of staff. So I, this was also the first time I sort of had my own team of people working for me. And so I used to, I used to bake them cookies. I used to buy them presents. I used to do all these things to buy their love. And we just, we became a close knit group. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know if I ever told you this, but at some point, like early in the first half of, of 2007, Ram uh, came to me and said, okay, I need you to look at the the freshman class of, you know, 35 members and put them in like high performance, middle performance, and low performance. And the high performing ones, we just need to like not spend that much time on. Like if they're okay for now, we'll revisit it. But but I want you to look at the the middle performers and put all your energies into them to get them into top performers. And we'll get to the low performers at the end. And I'm almost scared to hear this. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, you were someone who, I mean, we all, we all knew, okay, Jason Altmaier, just like everyone else got here in an incredible year and is going to have a very difficult, um, you know, reelect. Um, and their chiefs of staffs, you know, like, you know, you being new, we all said, okay, we have to be like supportive. Um, and first of all, you were not a low performer at any point, but <laughs> okay, I just wanted, what, what I wanted to tell you was that um, with very little, to be honest, like engagement from the caucus apparatus, it wasn't just me, but from uh, all of us who were working on this project, um, you built and organized and managed an office that became a high performer in the first year, which is absolutely incredible and just speaks to who you are and and yes to Jason too and I, and I want to hear from him or about him in a minute mm -hmm. um but the the reason I'm I was prompted to say this is because hearing you talk about how you you know recruited mentored shepherded a tight-knit staff that that isn't just brains and it requires brains but it also requires leadership and sort of intangible leadership qualities that not everyone in politics who is successful has. Like you can't, right? You can be successful and not have a staff work well together and like one another. But it, when you lack those things, you don't have, you, you know, it, it takes you time, longer time to succeed. And you had no time. Mm -hmm. You had to succeed in a very short period of time. And it's just... Such um, such an accomplishment. Um, and so it really speaks to who you are as a leader and a, and a professional. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Again, I give credit to Jason, which we can talk about. But also just the staff was incredible. I mean, they work so hard. And of course, all staffers on the Hill work hard. And there's so many hours and there's so many late nights and all of that. But, you know, I feel like they always did it with a smile on their face and they felt 
happy to be serving the district, which um, anyway, I, I give a lot of credit to our staff members and I'm yeah. still in touch with a lot of them. And so um, I and what are the attributes? Right. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned some of them, but what are some of the like hallmarks of good staff, good staff work? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got to be, you know, you want to put in the work. You want to chip in. So even if something isn't technically in your job description, you see a teammate struggling to get something done, you're going to jump in and help them. Um, and it's also creating relationships across the hill, across town, really, because you've got tons of people from government government affairs shops coming in to talk to you every day. Sometimes you're going to make them happy. Sometimes you're not. And you have to have sort of solid relationships with folks to be able to explain, here's why the congressman is going to vote this way on this issue, and this is the best for his district. But we still really support you in these other ways. And so having sort of that communication skill, I think, is um, can sometimes be overlooked in the interview process and as you're trying to figure out who you who you want on your staff. But um, I, I think young people who are interested in getting involved in politics or working on the Hill really need to be aware of creating those relationships with other offices and, frankly, anyone you come in t- contact with. Yep. Really good point. Um, so talk to me about Jason. You know, we all learn from our bosses as, as much as we, you know, if you are empowered by your boss to do certain things, you, you know, we're also obviously responsive to them, but we are also, you know, learning from them along the way. Mm -hmm. So what was he like to work with? He was great. I mean, from the very beginning, he put a lot of faith in me, as I said, uh, which I always appreciated. And he was also the kind of boss who wanted to give more opportunities to people. So, I mean, I can speak for myself, but it was very much Like, you should come to this meeting. You should meet with so-and-so. You should get to know this person. And some of that was just to help him because sometimes he doesn't have time to take a meeting with so-and-so. And so he wants his chief of staff to have a relationship with that person. But all of that was incredibly helpful to me in establishing myself in D.C., frankly. Um But also, you know, when I eventually left in 2011 to go to the Obama administration, he was so supportive. And so to me, the hallmark of a good boss is someone who wants you to grow and succeed. And sometimes that means outgrowing the position that you're in and finding something new. And he was very, very supportive of that, which I will always appreciate. Yeah. Um, I I got you know, through this experience. And then when I was at the White House, got to work with him. And he did always seem um, supportive, understanding, listening, um, and a really diligent member, mm-hmm. like did his homework, always working hard. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think part of that is he had been a staffer. So he was sort of wired that way. Yeah. And also being in a frontline district, right? I mean, he just had yeah. to work all the time. Yeah. Never yeah. ends. Well, um, I mentioned that you um, you had turned this office into like the, high, the highest of performing offices. And, and the proof was in the pudding because in 2010, as, as folks uh, for whom the wounds are still fresh, was a terrible year for Democrats. We lost 63 seats, including so many um, of those of that frontline class that was elected in 2006. 
Um, but Jason Altmaier survived. And that 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 is a real tribute to what you built and and he built along the way. Um, and the White House noticed. So, you know, within, you know, just a, a year after that, um, they asked you to serve as White House liaison and counsel uh, to the attorney general, who at that time was Eric Holder. And over the course of five years at DOJ, as I mentioned earlier, you rose to become chief of staff mm-hmm. of the department and uh, served as a counselor to Attorney General Loretta Lynch as well. So you go from, you know, this shoestring campaign to then a congressional office, which at the time I'm sure seemed big, but it was only 20, 25 people, I'd say, <laughs> right, to the United States <laughs> Department of Justice, this massive federal agency that is just directly tied into, you know, some of the country's most important, high profile, high stakes problems and solutions. So how did you make that transition from just going from, say, congressional office, where the number of people needed to make a decision is probably, you know, two to four at any given time, mm-hmm. um, to the U.S. Department of Justice? <clears throat> So it was sort of um, one of those situations where I never sort of set out to become chief of staff of Department of Justice. That was never the goal in mind. But um, but again, as we talked about earlier, I had this opportunity to go work in the AG's office, which is a very small staff, actually. He I mean, it was Eric Holder at the time. So he. I think it's only about like eight people who are on the staff, um, his direct staff. Um, so it's this very small office. And I was terrified. Again, it was it, it really was like, I don't even know all the different components of the department. I don't know this. I don't yeah. know that. And I found those people who could mentor me and who could really kind of show me the ropes and I think a lot of going into jobs like that, you don't really have a choice. You got to jump in and just start working because there's so much work to do and it's never ending. But at the same time, you take time to kind of watch others and see how they handle situations. And you figure out the people who really pull the levers in the department and uh, and you create your relationships with these folks. And then, frankly, it's it's just it's a team effort. And I love DOJ for a zillion reasons, really. But, um, you know, you're working with so many people who are career employees. And so they're not political appointees of the president. They are there through every administration. And they're incredible, incredible public servants. Um, And I wanted to learn from them. I was not going to tell them to change the way they've been doing something for 20 years. It was more, okay, let's figure out what the process is in place. Are there ways to create efficiencies? Are there things we need to change because of either the AG's priorities or the president's priorities? But at the end of the day, this organization is is an incredible place to be. And I wasn't going to sort of go in and try to make waves. Yeah. So you worked for uh, both Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch. And something that's, you know, sort of weird about being a staffer is that sometimes you are put in a position of being someone's trusted counselor sort of before you have a trust relationship, right? Yeah. I mean, here you are in the inner circle and yet uh, outside of some interviews, 
they don't really know you and and you're learning them. So how how did you develop that um, that trust relationship with them? And how did their expectations of you, uh, how were they similar or different? Mm-hmm. So Eric Holder, I had worked for him for I don't, uh, like over three years, I think, when I took over as chief of staff um, at the okay. at the end, um, just at the end of his tenure. Um, so we had a relationship. How we created that relationship, I give a lot of credit to him. I mean, he is just the most open, warm, charismatic. I mean, sort of what you see in public of Eric Holder is who you see behind closed doors of Eric Holder. So he was really incredible to work with, um, work for. Uh, And so, you know, over the years, you're traveling together. You're, I mean, there's so many things that a staffer does with a principal in an agency like that. So you really do kind of get to know each other. Um, And with Loretta Lynch, uh, I, I knew her Barely, because she had been a U.S. attorney in Brooklyn um, before she became the AG. And so I had met her a few times, but didn't really have an established relationship with her. I think at the time, I don't want to speak for A.G. Lynch, but I think at the time she was looking for continuity because she was coming in for the last year and a half of the administration. So she knew she didn't have a lot of time to get things going. And so she... um, was looking for staff because it wasn't just me. There were a number of people on Eric Holder's staff who stayed on to work um, with A.G. Lynch. And so she kept a lot of us to sort of continue continue the work. We were able to teach her about certain things in the A.G.'s office that she was not aware of because she had not been in that position before. And she very quickly told us, here are my priorities. Here is I, how I want to do things. And as a staffer, that's what you do, right? So you then go put that into action. Yeah. Something that I'm always uh, curious about is the brief. You know, that moment when your boss needs to get, you know, briefed up on a topic in a relatively short period of time for a moment, either a moment of decision making or maybe it's a moment where they're about to speak publicly, mm-hmm. or maybe when you're advising the attorney general, it is something where they need to go participate in a cabinet meeting, speak to the president, right? The high high stakes moments need prep, mm-hmm. and the brief is like that last moment of prep. Mm-hmm. What you know, as you approached those moments for the attorneys general, what you know, what were they looking for in in that last? you know, we'll call it 15 to 30 minutes of a brief. I think the fact that we were at Department of Justice and it was lawyers helped because as a lawyer, you're sort of trained to, okay, what are the, what are the top line issues here? What are the considerations? What's the decision point? And so I think most of the staff was pretty good about being able to do that. There may have been there may have been a little bit of a learning curve in that sense. But, um, you know, you kind of get a sense not long after you're there of, okay, when is this an emergency? Like a decision needs to be made now. When is this something where I got to plant this idea so they're thinking about it because the decision's going to be coming up? And when is it more of like a real long term, you know, in the future, we might want to think about X, Y, Z. 
And so you kind of get a sense of which bucket it falls into. And when it is sort of the emergency, we got to get this done. Um, For me, it was always making sure you also had the right people in the room. So sometimes it's just you one-on-one and you're telling the AG, here's the situation, what do you want to do? Sometimes you need other experts in the department to be in the room. So it's, you know, calling them and saying, get on up to the AG's conference room right now. We need to talk to you about whatever it is. Um, So kind of just making sure you have any question. You start to anticipate. That's what it is. You start to anticipate Mm. the kinds of questions they ask. And then you get a sense of who is going to be in the best position to answer this question. Sometimes it's you. Sometimes it's someone else in the department. Yeah, uh, it's such a good point. The anticipation and then find and bringing the resources. You don't need to be the expert. Right. You need to be able to identify, right, those resources and bring them to bear. Right. Um, you know, so you're, as I mentioned before, this is a rocket ship of an arc, of, of a career arc this decade. But on top of this, it is also the time in your life when you decide to have a family. And I know, and I don't ask all of my guests uh, about this, but I know that that experience was really important to you in the way that the department supported you um, and and made it all work um, for you and your family and enabled you to continue contributing to the country um, through public service. So talk to us about that experience and, and what it was like and what they did right to make you feel that way. It really was an incredible time in my life, both professionally and obviously personally. So I was at the department for five years, had three babies in those five years, which is insane anyway, right, In a personal on a personal level. Um, but professionally, to be juggling it all, I worked with a really incredible group of people at the department. And of course, again, headed by both attorneys general that I worked for, um, who were very supportive. But the staff was so great. And I will say I'm not the only one who was going out on maternity leaves. Excuse me. We had a number of women and men whose wives were having um, kids at the time. And we just, we took over each other's portfolios when we needed to. But the most important part was, so it was sort of one of those like team efforts. Like you see someone needs help, you're going to jump in and do it. But the most important part was when we came back, each of us, our entire portfolio was given back to us. So there was never a sense of, oh, wait, I went on leave and now I've lost one of the things that I really like to work on. Yes. And it was also, but it was also done in a way of like, are you ready to take this on yet? Like, do you, do you want me to brief you up on, on where we've been in the last three months while you've been out on leave? And then you can run with it or I'll, I'll continue to keep it for a few more weeks or months. Um, and I I feel incredibly lucky. At the time, I sort of felt like, well, this is just how it works now, right? Like mm-hmm. women supporting women, men supporting women, right? We're all in this new era. And I was a little naive, I think, in that sense. I think I was just very lucky that I landed in an office like that at that time in my life. But I will forever be grateful to everyone I worked with for how supportive they were. And personally, I mean, we were all really close and friends and happy for one another. And it was a special, special time. Uh, um, okay, so I, I want to get to your current job. Um, but before we leave sort of the, the the public service period here, is there something that you, you know, look you look back on during your time in, in government 
and reflect so fondly on that you're like, yeah, you know, I was part of that. Oh my gosh, everything. I, I I never took it for granted. I every time I walked into the White House, I would be like, I'm in the White House. This is amazing. Yeah. Every time I was, you know, one-on-one with an attorney general briefing him or her on something, I would think, oh, this is really amazing. And so I never took any of those moments for granted. I mean, I can't even, there's so many moments I've had, I had during my time in government that, um, that felt like real pinch me moments. There was, I, the one that's coming to mind right now is, um, we were at Camp David. So as you know, uh, they started allowing staff to use Camp David for retreats. So another like pinch me moment, frankly, I'm just, I'm at Camp David, pinch me moment. Um, and it was the day that the Supreme Court came down with the Obergefell um, gay marriage decision. Wow. And I was there with all these other political appointees from the Obama administration. Now, we did not have our phones because when you go to Camp David, you may, they make you check your phones so you can't take pictures and things like that. Um, but one person somehow had her phone and got an alert that the Supreme Court had just come down with legalizing gay marriage. And I can't tell you the, like exuberant I mean it's just like the excitement <sighs> in that room was something I will never forget and it was moments like that where it really felt like oh we are doing something to make life better in this country um and I don't want to I'm not overstating my importance in that it's just that you get to be surrounded by people who are also working so hard to make those things happen um so that was one of my incredible pinch me moments oh uh, that really is and and what a um you know when people imagine oh i'd like to work in politics or you know like they they think of themselves um that is like that is a captured in the movie uh, you know of your life moment yes right? yes that's really incredible yes it was wonderful uh, um so you take this experience and and in 2017 uh you became chief counsel at pnc bank and today, you serve as Chief Operating Officer for the bank's Corporate Responsibility Group. How did you find that transition, right, to go from public service now back into the private sector and in a chief legal role? Hard. Very hard. So, number one, we moved from Washington, D.C. to Pittsburgh. Um, and so I had spent a lot of time in Pittsburgh having worked for Jason Altmeyer, um, yep. but mostly in my brother's basement. So it was a, di- <laughs> it was a different situation now. <laughs> Don't tell me. Is he having a third set of twins? No, did you, did you move back? No, I'm just going to give him. I'm going to give him all my children instead. <laughs> right. Um, right. No. So my husband and I decided, we, you know, at the time we had at the end of the Obama administration, all the political appointees turned into pumpkins and we all got to find new jobs anyway. So it was sort of this moment of, if we want to leave D.C. ever, now probably would be a good time because I have to find a new job anyway, and the kids are really young. So if we're going to move them, they won't really care. So um, my husband, I mean, anyway, we talked about it a ton, and eventually we both found jobs in Pittsburgh at the same time, and we were going to be closer to family, which we really wanted with young kids. My sister lived in the D.C. area at the time, but she was like our only family around. So um, so we wanted to be, you know, closer to family. We wanted to be sort of in in sort of a smaller community. 
So we came to Pittsburgh and we love it. It's amazing. Anyone who's thinking about Pittsburgh, call me. I will I will sing its praises. Um, but going to a bank, or not even a bank, but going into a company to be um, in-house counsel was a huge change for me, not only because I had never been in that kind of role before, but I had not really practiced law for 10 years. Yeah. Even at DOJ, you know, I'm surrounded by the law and lawyers, and I'm talking about the law, but I'm not practicing law. Mm-hmm. So when I got to PNC, that was a that was a big transition for me. Also leaving government, I mean, I'm sure you felt this. Everyone who's had, you know, a significant career in government, I think, has a little bit of a letdown when they go into the private sector, which has nothing to do with the private sector. But you know, your every day feels so monumental when you're in government. And when I said that I didn't take things for granted, I really, really didn't. But the one thing I did was you wake up every day when you're in government and you have this sense of mission and you know you're going to work and whatever you do that day is going to impact something somehow. Again, not to self-aggrandize or say I had more of an impact than I did on some of these things, but it's these tiny ways that you're helping or you're just helping the department continue to run. And so, you know, you wake up every day and you go to work and you feel good about it. And then when I came to work in the private sector, it was a little bit of what's my mission now? So obviously you're helping your company succeed, but what's my mission in my community, in, you know, more broadly? And so that was a tough thing for me, but I did become really involved in community service. So I guess following in my parents' footsteps, I have started serving on a ton of boards in (laughs) Pittsburgh. And I just, I feel like there's always ways that you can affect your community or help, help, your community or serve, even if it's not your official job. Yes. Uh, I mean, the the dynamic you described is absolutely right. Um, Tell me, were there, I mean, here, as you said, you went into a new role that you you hadn't been practicing for a long time. And yet, in some ways, you're drawing on some of those same staffer skills. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so how did, you know, how did being a staffer for a decade prepare you for this role, even though it wasn't, you know, you weren't practicing law in that decade? I think anytime you go into a new organization, one of the biggest challenges, at least for me, that I try and tackle first is like, how do I get my arms around this? How do I figure out where the decisions are made? Um, Who's making the decisions? How do I get my voice heard, you know, when appropriate? Um, and who, again, who can I kind of latch on to as a mentor or someone who can teach me a lot of things just about the organization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I find those people. And uh, and I mean, that's what I did at PNC. And then, you know, eventually my job has changed a little bit. So now I'm in the corporate responsibility group and I'm no longer practicing law, really, which is probably for the best for me. And... <laughs> and um, and it's much more my skill set because it's more sort of policy focused and what is the bank doing in our communities and how are we helping low income communities around the country? And um, again, I feel like I'm in a mission driven. I'm doing mission driven work now, which is really important to me. Yeah. Well, um, we are coming up on the on the uh, end of our hour together. And there are a couple of questions I like to ask all of my guests. Um, okay. One of them I call in the vault. Can you tell us about a time when you royally screwed up, what you learned from it, and how you recovered? 
So this is sort of silly, but at the time, I mean, I lost hours and hours of sleep over this. So the first time I traveled with the attorney general, so it's Eric Holder, and we, you know, he would fly around the country to do events all the time or around the world, frankly, sometimes. Um, And the first time I had to travel with him, I had to go alone. Normally, there would be like a couple of staffers. So, of course, we had staffers with us who were doing advance work and his security details. So it's not like it's just you and him. But I was the only staffer going and I had never traveled with him. I had never flown with him anywhere before. The attorney general... um, has to fly military planes. So, you know, you have sort of like a private jet sort of, I mean, it's military, but um, flying you places. And so people briefed me. I can't tell you how many details they gave me about what you should and should not do on the plane. And when you get off the plane, you go to this car and then the attorney general gets in the other car and then you do this and like every detail. So we, we did the trip. It was successful. It was I thought it was great. Uh, Came back, went on my next trip, and somehow again I was by myself. So I did two trips where I'm by myself without other experienced staffers around. No big deal. They're like day trips. You know, you're like back and forth. And then on my third trip, we get on the plane to come back, and there's maybe two or three staffers, and someone pulls out a bottle of wine on the trip back. And I was like, oh, that's so nice. You brought wine. And they said, you're always supposed to bring wine. And I said, what is this rule? I didn't know. And no one had told me that as staff, you always bring a bottle of wine. So on the trip home, after whatever event you've been at or whatever, if anyone wants to partake in a glass of wine, you have a glass of wine. And I was so furious. No one had told me this. And I thought that Eric Holder was so mad at me that I hadn't brought wine. on the pl- I mean, it's so stupid now to think about. Like, he could not have cared less. I'm sure he didn't even notice. But the fact that I hadn't offered him <laughs> wine on the way home somehow made me feel like I had made the worst mistake ever. So from then on, I brought lots of wine. I brought cheeses. <laughs> I brought all kinds of snacks on the plate. Right. Don't you know, I sometimes bake for people. If you'd only, <laughs> if you'd only clued me in. I would have I, I, I made you cookies. <laughs> I know. I know. Um, okay, my next question um, is... Uh, Staffer Hall of Fame. If I could raise the money and build a Hall of Fame to staffers and put it on the National Mall, who would you nominate and why? Well, I'm going to disqualify you, Jim, because I'm we're already talking. in. It, oh, you're already it's in. My, it's my museum, so I just, <laughs> okay. I just, I'm right in there. I'm so happy Thank to you, hear though. it. I I'm, right, I appreciate. I'm it. so happy to hear. <laughs> I mean, this is politics, so my museum. <laughs> of course, your <laughs> I mean, name. Come on, it's perfect. <laughs> I. So I don't know if this is a little bit of not answering the question, but I'm going to say it's those career um, employees at the Department of Justice only because that's where I worked and I know it. But just the career officials at all the different federal agencies around the country who do the work day in, day out, could most of them could be making a lot more money working somewhere else. And they have committed themselves to public service. And I will tell you, the government could not function without them. There is no way that there would be the institutional knowledge and the talent. I mean, these people are brilliant. Um, And I was always just in awe of them and really, really respected the way they came to work every day, no matter the administration, no matter 
you know, the politics that were swirling around them. They stayed focused on their job, um, you know, without regard to any political affiliation. And I, I really, really respect all of them. Oh, such um, a good uh, set of nominees. It, it is the the civil workforce is and the career officials that populate our government are a a national treasure. They right? are that 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 are uh, that the public by and large <clears throat> does not fully appreciate because they can't fully appreciate. And and I know I didn't fully appreciate until I you know had some window into the amount of expertise and competence. Um, and these, and patriotism, all these things that you just described mm-hmm. um, are in spades throughout our government, and we're all the beneficiaries. 100%. Sharon Warner, I uh, have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you, as I have all of our conversations over the years, but you are somebody who I really admire and so appreciate. Um, and so thank you. Thank you for what you gave to this country through your public service. Thank you for spending this hour uh, with us. And... Um, be well, my friend. Let's continue to stay in touch. Thank you so much, Jim. I really am very honored to to be on here and talk to some of your listeners. It is my pleasure. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.